0: In one small corner of the universe, in a hilly green Belgian forest valley, just steps away from the French border, you'll find an old quiet monastery rising among the trees. The monastery bricks and stones carry a unique color. It's a sandy sort of yellow. There's an overwhelming aura of tranquility broken only by singing birds, running water from nearby streams, wind rushing through the grass, or the occasional passing car. It's a place called Orval, and it contains multitudes. You'll find history, art, architecture, and insights gleaned from hundreds of years of monastic living. The place offers lessons about the value of patience, steadfastness, focus, and the path to brilliance. And on the simpler side, you can also find a nice selection of honeys, cheeses, and beer. And I want to begin with the beer, because there's something brilliant and beautiful about the way Orval does beer. They have just one. Just the one or of all. Let that sink in for a second. I mean, think about beer stores, places that we've all been. Imagine the shelves, they're stocked with silver cans, limited edition bottles. You've got lights, dries, originals, limes, blondes, browns, triples, and specials. If they were zoos, most beer shelves would be the birdhouse, a colorful, screeching cacophony vying desperately for your attention. Even West Flederen, the legendary monastic brewers who are Orval's Belgian Trappist bros and who are famously not interested in commercialism, they make three types of beer. But not Orval. I mean, it's almost mind-bending. We're talking some serious single-minded focus. One beer. Who does that type of thing anymore? You know, I wasn't trying to overthink it, but it made me wonder... Are the monks of Orval trying to pull off some kind of Trappist Zen riddle? Are they trying to open our eyes to the folly of the multitasking, hyper-connected modern world? You know, trying to demonstrate how complexity can be wrapped up within simplicity? Or are they just intent on practicing excellence and preserving their way of life while they do it? I've loved Orval for over 15 years, and I still didn't know how to answer these questions. I needed to find out. I needed to travel to Orval. To learn more about its story, to learn about something simple and complex, old and new, beautiful and plain, all at the same time, I found a lot, and I know one thing for sure: the beer, the one or of all, is definitely worthy of a quest. From Earblitz, I'm Nate Carney, and this is Belgian Beer Quest. Now, before attempting to unravel the riddles of Orval, I want to go back to the beginning for just a moment. Well, at least my beginning with Orval. So to set the scene, the place was Neufchateau, Belgium, a sleepy village set on two high ridges above a beautiful green valley in the Ardennes forest. The year was 2004. Now, for explorers, this was kind of the ancient times. The internet back then was a mostly Google-free series of cluttered images and basic fonts. Facebook and Twitter were just twisted gleams in bored East Coast College boys' eyes. In short, it wasn't as easy, even 15 years ago, to learn about things like really amazing beer. But fortune favors the bold and sometimes, like me, the blissfully ignorant. So when I found myself in a cozy hotel bar in Neuf Chateau in 2004, Rather than ordering a German Weizen or a Garden, which I knew about, I decided to ask for something local instead. How about Orval, the bartender asked me. I didn't even pretend that I'd heard of it, but I nodded sort of sagely as if to say, sure, bring me this Orval of which you speak. A goblet with a beer that seemed to contain something that glowed like amber was placed before me. I was intrigued, very intrigued. I had experience with pint glasses, pills, flutes, and tall, twisting Weizen glasses. But a goblet? Especially one with a fish, a ring, and the name Orval in block letters across the front? It was kind of medieval and very cool. And then I took a taste. All right, I am alone, finally, (laughs) at night, after a long but good day with a glass of Orval. So, let's taste this bad boy, shall we? Oh wow. That is like an instant shot of memories. (sighs) Straight to the Ardennes forest. Hmm, man, it's good. It's caramel, just a hint of bitter. Brings me back. It's seriously like the first time I tasted it. I, I gotta do this again to just test, make sure that this actually is doing what I think it's doing. Wow. It's so unique, it's so orval. And it takes me right back. Man alive. It's amazing how that happens. It's one taste of something, and then all of a sudden you're in the past. It's like that scene from that cartoon movie, Ratatouille, when the super harsh critic takes a bite of the rat's ratatouille, and he's instantly transported back to his childhood. Probably not the best comparison, but you get the idea. All right, time to enjoy more of this delicious Orval. Tasting Orval today brings me right back to that moment. I think it's because there's nothing else like it in the world. The taste is distinct, and I'm not just saying this to be nice or to pay a backhanded every kid gets a ribbon for participating type of compliment, you know, something along the lines of, oh, every beer is different, so they're all distinct in their own special way. No. There's no relativism at work here. Orval is distinctly good. It's something that almost belongs in its own category. There's a depth to it, a complexity, a lightness, all of them working together at the same time. There is a bit of bitterness, yes, but this is a wonderfully drinkable beer. It's delicious, and it's very uniquely Orval. And it's not just me saying that. Orval might just be the most respected beer in Belgium, a country for which beer making is a point of national pride. I spoke with Brandon Carney, a journalist, a brewer, and one of the world's leading experts on Belgian beer about Orval, and this is what he had to say.
1: In Belgium, general beer drinkers, lay people, brewers, uh, beer geeks, Orval is, uh, occupies the top shelf in terms of levels of respect. The beer itself is a um, it's a kind of amber-coloured Belgian ale, and it's fermented with a, a, a top-fermenting, clean yeast. So an ale yeast, which would be kind of on the same family as like an English ale yeast. So it would produce some subtle fruit aromas, maybe some peaches, some, some apricot, a little bit of citrus, um, and maybe very, very low phenol side, so maybe a little bit of spice the The malt is kind of mostly pale malt, uh, so they use two different pale malt varieties of barley, which give a kind of a a, a crisp biscuity flavour. Then they add in a little bit of a caramel malt to give a kind of that colour and a, and a touch of kind of um, toffee sort of flavour. And then they have like a very small bit of black malt as well, just to give give it a little bit of edge. And they hop it quite. Uh, highly with uh, noble hops Um, so it's got quite a good bitterness level. Then what they do is they dry hop it and that means that in the cold side after primary fermentation they add more hops in massive big bags of of like uh, uh, fresh flowers and they're contributing uh, essential oils which um, give the beer an aroma.
0: It's important necessary even, to consider Orval within the context of the Trappists. Orval beer is recognized as an authentic Trappist product. As we'll hear in a minute, this is quite meaningful. But first, who are the Trappists and what do they have to do with beer? The long answer is well worth a bottle of Orval and an hour spent with a search engine, or even better, a book. You could do a lot worse than to start with Thomas Merton the short answer however is that trappists are catholic monks and nuns who are cloistered which is to say that they mostly avoid the world beyond the gates of their abbeys or convents to be a bit more precise trappists are a cistercian order in which practitioners adhere to a strict observance of the rule of saint benedict now the rule of saint benedict was published about 1500 years ago but it still inspires devotion among catholic religious folks the world over Strictly observing St. Benedict's rule means that Trappists live a life of work, prayer, and silence. It also means that using the labor of your hands to support the efforts of your religious community is encouraged, and it's from this principle that Trappist beers emerge. They are a means to an end. Their intent isn't growth or global brand domination. Rather, Trappist beers exist to support the efforts of a particular monastery. Now, an authentic Trappist beer is a rare creature. There are only 14 in the world, and 6 of the most famous ones, including Orval, are found in Belgium. But being exclusive is not what the Trappist mark is about, and it's not at all what the Trappists themselves are after. It's something more meaningful, more authentic. Let's turn to Brian Den Carney to break it down.
1: Trappist doesn't really tell you anything about the beer. It tells you about uh, where the beer comes from. Trappist beer is beer that is brewed in uh, in Trappist abbeys, and there are certain rules uh, you need to fulfil uh, in order for it to to be called an authentic Trappist product. Those include things like the br- beer must be brewed on the grounds of the abbey, so you can't put a part of production in a massive facility. It has to all be within the grounds of the abbey, making it authentically made there. The process of brewing and production of the beer must be under the supervision of the monks, so they must control the decisions effectively of the beer and its marketing and sales. The other part of being a trapeze brewery is that you must put the majority of the profits from the beer back into the monastic community or into local charities. And that is kind of uh, the line that trappist breweries they don't want to be for-profit organizations what they want to do is use the brewery to sustain their monastic lifestyle and i have been lucky enough to visit a number of different trappist abbeys something that's not always easy to do and what i've been struck with is the fact that even though some of the breweries are quite commercial now and that they export around the globe and they they have quite a large production the people in charge are the monks and the monks are only interested in sustaining their monastic life, and it is even for someone like me who can be quite kind of sceptical or, or cynical. When I went to to sort of see what it was like, I came away thinking this is absolutely authentic, and these this is this is a really beautiful story.
0: The Orval story, through virtue of its Trappist roots and commitment, has a heart. What Trappists produce is not about wallets, at least not theirs, it's about sustaining a way of life, about keeping things like contemplation and searches for very big answers alive. And when you visit Orval, these things become evident. Seeing the place where Orval is made tells you a lot about the beer, even if the brewery itself is off limits to almost everyone. After parking near the Abbey, and there is plenty of parking, especially on cold winter days, you walk through a quiet, arched entrance and into a tranquil courtyard. To visit the grounds, you have to buy a ticket. You pay first in the gift shop, which is the same place where you can buy beer, cheese, postcards, books, and other goodies, but the price is reasonable, and it's well worth it because the grounds have their own stories to tell. Standing in what was once a courtyard in the old ruins, and it's fascinating. Arches, windows, the new buildings and abbey towering off to my right. Green grass, bushes, walls, hedges, everywhere. There's the distant sound of water that's rushing from the spring, the famous spring that helps make Orval Orval. And it's tranquil. It's wooded. It seems exactly the sort of place that long ago monks would come if they were looking for a place to look upward. I'm a little surprised that a, a Tuscan royal person made it all the way here and that she lost her ring in the river, but you know, that's how it goes. So one of the things I love about strolling the old Abbey grounds is that there's an opportunity to learn everywhere. There's a little signs posted all over the walls that give you hints and insights into the daily lives of the monks that lived here hundreds of years ago. I'm standing now near the old armarium. I was raised Catholic and grew up across the street from a Benedictine monastery way back in the day. But I'd never heard of one of these before. It was apparently a small room where monks would go to read the scriptures. And the thought that by reading it aloud, especially, they would learn the word and it would bring them somehow closer to where they were trying to get to. So it's very cool. Then there's also stuff like the architecture room, where you can learn about a belfry, and on our lucky day, we were able to see a dead bat near the part about the belfry. That wasn't so great, but still, it was a bat near a belfry, so unexpected and kind of interesting. Water is also an essential part of the Orval story. In fact, it may be the most crucial element Without it, Orval might never have come to be. Legend has it that Matilda, an 11th century widowed Tuscan royal, lost her wedding ring one day in a spring in what is now Belgium. Distraught at her loss, she prayed for the ring's return. A gallant trout swam upward, ring in its mouth, causing the princess to exclaim that, truly, this place was a golden valley, or, as it would be said in French, un val d'or, hence Orval. Overwhelmed with gratitude, Matilda, who was a formidable figure in her own right, decreed that an abbey should be established on that location. Now, no matter your beliefs about fish or their intentions, the same water that runs through Orval's grounds is used today to produce the beer. Visiting Matilda's fountain is also an excellent part of the abbey experience. It's a smaller pool than I expected, especially for something that's so legendary. It's shallow, too. When my son saw it, he said, if the princess dropped a ring in here, why didn't she just dive in after it? It's a good question. The bottom of the pool stretches maybe two feet at most. Easy enough to see a ring and not nearly deep enough that you think a fish would have to bring it. But, I remind the boy, that was a long time ago. That's how histories pass into legends. And the pool that's here now probably was a lot, lot deeper back then. Now it's beautiful, it's quiet, And it reminds you of the importance of water to what it is that happens here. The Matilda legend is where Orval's history begins, but what happened afterward is a fairly familiar tale for many medieval European monasteries. There were cycles of destruction and reconstruction and more than half a millennium after its founding, the community was thriving only to be decimated in the mid-17th century by the Thirty Years' War that raged across Europe. At the beginning of the 18th century, the Orval community was reformed to follow the strict Cistercian observance that we now associate with Trappists. Things were back on track, or so it seemed, but less than a century later, French revolutionaries arrived. In theory, they were acting on behalf of the newly formed Republic, which had claimed all church property, very extensive at the time, as its own in support of the state. In practice, they often sacked and pillaged monasteries, burned buildings to the ground. That's exactly what happened at Orval. By the end of 1795, the monks had dispersed. Matilda's Golden Valley was no more. The 20th century, however, brought another rebirth. In 1926, the abbey grounds were returned to the Cistercian order, and three years later, a massive reconstruction program began, one that was to last almost 20 years and which would restore the abbey more or less to the condition in which we can see it today. The rebuilding project was designed and overseen by the noted Belgian architect, Henry Voss. More on him in a minute the Orval monks went right to work and began brewing beer in 1931 to support themselves and their community. Though they had intended no such thing, the monks of Orval were kind of revolutionaries. They dry hopped their beer when the grandfathers of today's dry hopping hipsters were just children. Why? Well, let's hear from and Carney about the fascinating brewing tradition and the lineage of master brewers that stretches from the 1930s to today.
1: The process of dry hopping is really interesting because it's, it's kind of uh, quite trendy now and, and a lot of breweries around the world, particularly in the United States of America, are dry hopping heavily to equip their beers with those big juicy aromas. But actually this was a technique that Orval were doing in the early 1930s. <laughs> and, you know, this is something that they have continued to do throughout the, the existence of the beer. And it was actually, the first brewer of the beer was a guy called Hans Papenmayer, who was a German guy working in Orval. And his brewing assistant was um, from East Flanders, but had studied brewing in England. <laughs> and it's thought that that is where they brought the dry hopping technique back from England at that time, and that Hans Papenmaier brought the noble hop varieties that they used from Germany, where he was from. And the guy that kind of made Orval, as we know it today, is a guy called Jean-Marie Roch, who's, who's the head brewer of Orval up until fairly recently, and now uh, the head brewer is, is a lady called Anne-Francoise Biparche, and she is the first uh, female brewer at a Travis brewery but she's been working there for maybe 20, 30 years as assistant to Jean-Marie Rock, and she's highly respected. She also uh, manages the, the, the cheese mongery that they have on site too. So it's quite a big job with a lot of responsibility and she's also in charge of developing the beer ensuring that she works with the farmers, works with the hop growers and managing this, you know, this fantastic legacy that Orval have. So just in terms of the people that have worked on the beer, the the brewery itself and it surrounds the story of, of kind of its history of the abbey and you know the, the the you know how the beer is made it's 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 just a wonderful story
0: and so the practice of brewing one great beer extended through time from master brewer to master brewer to master brewer but early on another very crucial and very visible part of the arval story came into focus the bottle. Orval fans, myself included, really love the bottle, which is almost a piece of art. It looks like a bowling pin, or what our friend Brandon Carney calls a skittle, only a lot cooler, and it stands out from every other bottle out there. It's also an outstanding story on its own, and the shape serves a very specific purpose. Again, let's hear from Brandon.
1: The beautiful thing about Orval is that it's in every part of the beer, so, Another example is its packaging, like you have one beer that goes through a whole lot of different processes using amazing ingredients, but how it's presented is also unique. The skittle bottle, which I think a lot of people who who know Arval will be familiar with, is a kind of curvaceous uh, bottle shaped like a skittle with a a kind of a thin neck that that tapers outwards uh, towards the top, and it was developed by the same architect that rebuilt the monastery in the 1930s mm-hmm. uh, he also developed the bottle his name was Henry Voss and the shape of it is like a skittle so they call it the Voss skittle bottle what's a, what's a skittle? it's like when, when you're bowling and you knock them over ok I was going to say it looks like a bowling pin to America a bowling so. pin okay. ok there you go there <laughs> you go good good please continue <laughs> yeah. 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 sorry my Americanism is not no 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 that's, that's, I'll translate happy to so so, uh, so, like, so it's a shape like a bowling pin and, and what that does actually is because the beer is also re-fermented and we talked about the fact that it can be higher alcohol, higher in CO two. There could be some sediment in the bottom of the bottle. When you pour the beer, the 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 logic behind the bowling pin bottle is that there is a shelf when you pour gentle that on which you can rest the yeast, so that you only pour clear beer in. Or if you want to keep the yeast till the end, you can do so. And that's the kind of the logic behind it. But it's also unique and it's absolutely beautiful bottle and really stands out. Um, So like that, that you talk about single-minded focus and also if you have one beer, you want to make sure that the package for it is is also beautiful.
0: There is something singular about this bottle. It is indeed curvaceous, but it's also dignified and interesting and mysterious and sort of fun. And more importantly, it's the only one, as in the only bottle associated with Orvald beer. Which brings me back to a number that keeps resonating in my mind when it comes to Orval. One. For me, the number one is a metaphor here. It points to something deeper, something that sheds light into the nature of existence while at the same time being a totally delicious compliment to warm potatoes and melted cheese. It's not bad. And while there's only one Orval beer, it exists along a spectrum. The ingredients are of such good quality and the process is so refined, Orval can be preserved for years. And depending on when you open it, you'll get a different taste. And this raises a question. What's the best version of Orval?
1: In terms of a beer which is fantastic fresh, and also fascinating as it gets older, there is a constant discussion in Belgium about what is your favorite Orval, fresh six months, a year. And, of course, there is no correct answer because they're all wonderful.
0: Another fun way to look at this question, to think about Orval, and, of course, to drink Orval, is to consider Orval Vert, which is also called Petit Orval. Roughly translated, this means Green Orval, Orval Vert, or Little Orval, Petit Orval. Essentially, Orval Ver is a young version of Orval, which can only be had at the aptly named Guardian Angel Restaurant, which sits outside the walls of the Abbey. You can't buy bottles of Orval Ver. You can only drink it on tap at the restaurant. And it's delicious. It's low alcohol, 4.5% ABV. It tastes a lot like an IPA, like something you might drink in a brooding Oregon alehouse. But it's fresh, hoppy, and refreshing. It's a complex beer and, in beer terms, seems wise beyond its years. And while Orval Vert is technically just Orval at a different point in time, it's also not the same as Big Orval. Not yet, anyway. Getting that good requires time. For beer, or for anything, really. Either way, Orval Vert makes me glad I traveled to the place. To see the abbey, to wander the grounds, ponder the ruins, think about the history and of course, to bring some beer home with me. But mostly, I was glad to gain a deeper understanding of the excellence that is part and parcel of Orval. All right, it's almost time to head back. Just one more look around at this amazing place at the trees, the ridges. What a valley, what an amazing place. You can see the Yellowstone in the distance restaurant's right here. The taste of Orval there is is a bit distant, but it's still there. And best of all, I get to bring a bit of Orval home to enjoy. It's gonna be great. This is well, well worth the trip. Gonna to have to do it again sometime soon. I'm very lucky that it's just not that far. What a cool place, Orval. This episode of Belgian Beer Quest is brought to you by Earblitz, a production of AdvantiPro GmbH. Our producers include master brewer Brett Hellenius, chief chemist Manuel Flatkin, and me, your humble test taster and host, Nate Carney. Audio editing and mixing is also by Manuel Flatkin, who dry hopped heavily to get this blend just right. The EarBlitz.com website was delivered by a gallant trout and then built brick by brick by Laura Hirsch, Tavo Caballero, and Aaron T. Gregg. You can find us at EarBlitz.com or subscribe to Belgian BeerQuest on all platforms where you find your favorite podcasts. Special thanks to Brand and Carney for lending us his time and expertise, and to the Orval community for doing what they do. Please join us next time when we step into the fascinating world of Chimay, which manages to be both wonderfully local and very global all at the same time. Until then, cheers to you.